So as I said, Dav is going to be speaking to us from Mark 10, continuing the the series this morning. I'm going to read now from Mark 10, starting at verse 32. Starts, Jesus predicts his death a third time. Mark 10, verse 32 says, They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. You do not know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man named Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. So for nearly 10 months now, is that correct? For nearly 10 months, we've been studying the book of Mark, Mark's book of good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Because that's what the book of Mark is, isn't it? It's a book of good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's what it says right at the beginning of the book. It is such a key verse, isn't it? to understand in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. 
It is so helpful. The beginning of the good news, the gospel, about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So after reading the book of Mark, if we don't come to the conclusion that this is the best news we've ever heard, then we have understood the book. Because it is life-changing good news about Jesus. And the book of Mark is good news because it tells us exactly who Jesus is, it tells us why Jesus has come, and it tells us what's involved in following Jesus. And when we know the answer to those three questions, who Jesus is, why Jesus came, and what's involved in following him, when we know the answer to those questions and believe it with all our heart, our lives are changed forever. This is such good news, isn't it? And one of the clearest verses in the book of Mark that tell us who Jesus is and why he came is Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Mark 10, 45. And it's very closely connected to our passage this morning, verses 46 to 52. What do we read there? Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Isn't that a great verse? If someone was to ask me, Dav, as we're studying the book of Mark together, I'd like to learn just one verse from the book of Mark. I would recommend this verse, would you? Maybe Mark 10, 45. That's probably one of the clearest verses in Mark's gospel, telling us who Jesus is and why he's come. So who is Jesus? He's the son of man. And that is Jesus' favorite title for himself. I don't know what your favorite title for yourself is. Very recently, people have been calling me Reverend Taylor. No one from this church, you'll be glad to know. It's really weird. I have been ordained, but it's, it's not a title that I've sort of officially given myself. It's really odd when someone calls you Reverend Taylor. Or maybe some of them might call me Mr. Taylor or David or Dav. But I suppose one of my favorite titles is just Dad. It's just great, isn't it? be called dad, doesn't it? I wonder what your favorite title is. Well, this is Jesus' favorite title for himself, the Son of Man, because Jesus only refers to himself as Christ three times in the book of Mark. Isn't that interesting? And they're quite vague as well. He only refers to himself as Christ three times, but he refers to himself as the Son of Man 16 times in the book of Mark. So I think it's quite important, this title, Son of Man. But what does it mean, and why is Jesus so obsessed with this title for himself, the Son of Man? Well, the best description of the Son of Man is found in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel and chapter 7, a prophecy that was written 500 years before the birth of Christ. And it's a prophecy of the ascension. Forty days after Jesus rose from the dead, his resurrected body went up into heaven. And 500 years before that, Daniel prophesied this event. So what do we read in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 
to 14. And this will help us to understand what it means to be the Son of Man. Daniel 7, this is 13 to 14. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, and that's the title for God the Father. So he approached God the Father and was led into his presence. Verse 14, he, so that's the Son of Man, the Son of Man was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Isn't that a glorious passage of Scripture? Isn't that a glorious presentation of the Son of Man? A presentation of Jesus. So the Son of Man sounds like quite an important person, doesn't he? So for Jesus to be the Son of Man means that he has authority, glory, power, and people all over the world worship him. Authority, glory, power, and people all over the world worship him. And that is Jesus, isn't it? Now, many people went to Ascot maybe yesterday and Friday to try and get a glimpse of the Queen of England. And when you ask people, say, why do you do that? You know, why do you queue for hours, stand for hours to just get a glimpse of someone? And people will say, there's just something about her. And I kind of understand what people mean. There's just like a beauty about her, an almost like a glory. There's something majestic about her. And I kind of, kind of see where people are coming from. But you ain't seen nothing yet. If that's what we think of a fallen, sinful human being like the queen, what is Jesus like? The son of man. And sadly, the queen of England will not reign forever and ever, will she? But the son of man is a king who will reign forever. That is Jesus. Authority, glory, power, He's worshipped all over the world. And he rules and he reigns forever and ever. Jesus, the Son of Man. But why did he come? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus, this powerful glorious and everlasting king came to serve and give his life for us so that we can be set free, set free from sin, hell, death, and the devil. Isn't that just mind-blowing? When you think who the Son of Man is, this glorious, powerful, everlasting king, he came to serve. Could you imagine if you had a knock on your front door? You open the door, and it was the queen. Queen of England. 
and she had a basket with her with cleaning products in there and rubber gloves. Hello, I've come to clean your toilet. That's never going to happen, is it? You'd be like, no, you're the queen of England. You're not supposed to clean toilets. Yes, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And then could you imagine if she said, and that punishment that you deserve for breaking the law, that punishment that you deserve for speeding, I will take the points onto my license and I will pay the fine for you. It'd be just mind-blowing, wouldn't it? Or if she said, and that death sentence you deserve, I'll get executed instead of you. The Son of Man, the everlasting King, he's come to serve us, give his life for us, so that we can be set free. So what's Mark 10, 45 got to do with verses 46 to 52? Well, in verses 46 to 52, Jesus is living out verse 45, isn't he? In verses 46 to 52, we see King Jesus serving. So let's have a look at verses 46 to 52. We'll begin with verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. Jericho. And that is so significant, I think. The city of Jericho in the land of Canaan, which was later to be called Israel, was famous for being a city that experienced the judgment of God for their wickedness. So about 2,000 years before the birth of Christ, in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham was promised that his descendants would live in Canaan, that they would possess that land. So then, 600 years later, about 1,400 years before the birth of Christ, it was time for Abraham's descendants to enter Canaan, to take possession of the land. And Joshua was going to lead them in. So by now, Abraham had had lots of descendants, maybe about three million people. And they'd been living in Egypt for 400 years. They'd been wandering around in the desert for 40 years. But now the day had come, in Joshua chapter 6, for them to enter the promised land. Now, the people living in Canaan and the city of Jericho were evil and dangerous people. They were really evil and dangerous people. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, we can read about maybe some of the stuff they got up to. What do we read there? Deuteronomy 18 verses 9 to 12. This is some of the stuff the people living in the city of Jericho got up to. 1,400 years before the birth of Christ. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, who is a medium or spiritist, or consults the dead, 
Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. Because of these same detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out the nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. So the people living in the land of Canaan were seriously evil and dangerous, weren't they? And God commanded Israel to destroy the whole city, apart from Rahab and her family. And it's almost understandable, isn't it? If we knew of a country and a city who were sacrificing children, there'd be uproar, wouldn't there? We'd be protesting in Parliament Square, wouldn't we? Telling the government, you've got to do something about this evil country or this evil city. You need to just wipe it out. A city that sacrifices children. That's how detestable Canaan and the city of Jericho was to God. And there was even a curse pronounced on the city of Jericho. What do we read in Joshua chapter 6, verse 26? At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city of Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So that's Jericho, a cursed city, an infamous city for evil and wickedness. But that's where Jesus went, wasn't it? In Mark chapter 10, verse 46. That's where Jesus went. It's a place you'd never expect a king to go. The king of glory. With authority and power. You'd never expect him to go there, would you? This cursed city. It's almost as if... If... um, I'm picking on the queen a bit this morning. Could you imagine if the queen went to the Netherlands... And the first place someone took her was the red light district in Amsterdam. Someone would think, what are you doing taking the Queen of England to a filthy, dirty place like this? That's where Jesus went. He went to this cursed city of Jericho. And look who he meets in Jericho, in verse 46. Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside, begging. So Jesus meets someone who would have been considered cursed, because blind people would have been considered cursed. That's not what Jesus thought of them, but that's what everyone would have thought. If a baby was born blind, they just thought, oh, What a curse that's been put on this baby and this family. And Bartimaeus doesn't even have a name, really, does he? Doesn't even have a name. He's just called, oh, it's just Timaeus' son. So maybe I'm using my imagination a little bit here. But you can almost imagine maybe Bartimaeus' mother gave birth to him. And he didn't have any eyes. He was blind. And they thought, oh, this is a cursed baby. And they didn't even bother naming him. Didn't even bother naming him. Now that's maybe likely, isn't it? 
You'd never be able to get educated. You'd never be able to get a job blind. Had to spend his whole life begging. So Jesus meets someone who would have been considered cursed in this cursed city of Jericho. But isn't that what Jesus did all his life? He went to cursed places to meet cursed people. Isn't that what Jesus did in his death? He went to a cursed place. Cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree, hung on a cross, a shameful, humiliating death. And as Jesus was dying this cursed death, there were cursed people hanging next to him. And he loved them, especially the thief. What did he say? Jesus, remember me? He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So Bartimaeus may have been physically blind, but he wasn't spiritually blind, was he? He could see who Jesus was. I love that in verse 47 and verse 48. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Why does Bartimaeus call Jesus son of David? What does it mean to be the son of David? Well, King David had 19 sons, and his most famous son, Solomon became king after him. He wasn't his firstborn son or his eldest son, but he did become king after David. But there is one great son of David. Let us read what God said to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 16. 2 Samuel 12, 7 to 16 written a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. What do we read there? The Lord, with a message to David here. When your days are over, David, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And we might be thinking, ah, oh, this is Solomon, isn't it? And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Yeah, God did use Solomon to build the temple. But is Solomon reigning now? No, who is reigning now? It is Jesus. He is the eternal king, isn't he? I will be his father, and he will be my son, the son of God. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So the son of David is very similar to the son of man an eternal king with an everlasting kingdom. 
an eternal king who has God as his father and was punished by God through human hands. Obviously, Jesus didn't do any wrong, but he became sin for us, didn't he? He became sin for us. He was punished by God the Father for our sins through the hands of sinful, evil, wicked hands. And David is Jesus, his great, 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 25 times, grandfather. Jesus came from David. This is one of the clearest prophecies of Jesus, isn't it? This thousand-year-old prophecy in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 16. But how did Bartimaeus know that Jesus was the son of David? How did he know that Jesus was the son of David? How could he have known? Well, Bartimaeus must have heard about this man called Jesus of Nazareth. He must have heard of his teaching. He must have heard about his miracles. He heard about someone who would calm the storm, who would cast out demons, who would heal the sick, who would raise the dead and walk on water. And that all pointed to that Jesus is the Son of Man, the Son of David. It's all pointed to that Jesus is God the Son. And Bartimaeus is saying, I know who this is, Jesus of Nazareth. I've heard what he's done. I've heard what he said. He can be none other than God the Son. None other than the Son of Man, David's greatest son, the Son of David. And when Bartimaeus heard that Jesus was passing by, he wasn't going to let him pass by without crying out to him for mercy. It didn't matter how many people told him to be quiet. He said, no, I'm not going to let Jesus, the son of David, pass by without me receiving mercy from him. And you can almost imagine the scene, can't you? For the past maybe three years, Bartimaeus had been hearing about Jesus of Nazareth, the eternal king, David's greatest son. And Bartimaeus must have been thinking, oh, if he ever passes by this way, if he ever comes to Jericho and walks past me, I'm not going to let him pass by without me receiving mercy from him. And maybe every day, Bartimaeus must have been thinking, I wonder if today the son of David is going to pass by. I wonder if today he's going to pass by. And then one day he goes to his usual spot, sits down, Maybe says, please give some money to a poor blind beggar. And then he hears maybe a commotion. He hears like a huge crowd. And then he sort of asks, what's going on? What's going on? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And maybe his heart must have leapt, isn't it? He must have thought, Jesus, I know who that is. Jesus of Nazareth. He is the eternal king. He is David's greatest son. I'm going to cry out to him for mercy now. He's my only hope. And with all his might, Bartimaeus cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Such a great prayer, isn't it? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
And I believe with all my heart that Jesus is passing by this morning, by your spirit, isn't he? It might be the last time. Do you think so? This could be the last time that we'll meet together as a church, that Jesus will pass us by by his spirit. He is present when his people gather together. He walks among the candlesticks, his churches. He walks among his people, doesn't he, Jesus? Jesus is passing by this morning by his spirit. Let us not let him pass by without crying out for mercy. We all need to do it, don't we? If you've been a Christian for 25 years, if you've been a Christian for two years, for two minutes, we still need to keep crying out to Jesus, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And what's Jesus' response? What do we read there in verse 49? Jesus stopped and he said, call him. So they called the blind man, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. I love that. If we want to get Jesus' attention, and I'm sure we'd all say, oh, I'd love Jesus to take notice of me. I want Jesus to take notice of me now, today, this week. Cry out to him for mercy. Last the prayer that Jesus hears. Jesus, have mercy on me. Have pity on me. Have compassion on me. I said, oh, oh, I hear that prayer. I hear the person who's crying out humbly in their sin for mercy. I listen to that. And I love verse 50. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. Why does Mark give us that detail? Why did Bartimaeus throw off his cloak? Was he trying to make maybe a dramatic entrance, throwing off his cloak, da-da, or something? Why did he throw off his cloak? Well, because he wanted to get to Jesus as fast as possible. He said, I'm not letting anything slow me down here. I'm not going to let anything hinder me from getting to Jesus as soon as possible. I'm not going to get tripped up with his cloak. I'm throwing it off, and I'm going straight to Jesus. And there's a lesson for us there, isn't it? Is there anything that's hindering us from coming to Jesus? A sin, a worldly passion, our pride? What do we need to throw off? What's blocking us from coming to Jesus? What's distracting us? What's distracting us right now, this morning? from listening to Jesus. We need to just throw it off. Why am I thinking about that junk, worldly, rubbish, sin? I just want to go straight to Jesus. What do we read in Hebrews 12? This is 1 to 2. Let us throw off everything. Everything means everything. It might not necessarily be sinful. But you know, you know when you need to get rid of something. You know when something's slowing you down a worldly passion, throw it off. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. So what did Jesus actually say? So Jesus stopped. That must have been so dramatic when he heard someone crying out to him for mercy. 
And then he calls Bartimaeus to come to him. And what does he say then in verse 51? What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. What do you want me to do for you? And that is Jesus serving, isn't it? It should be the other way around, isn't it? This is the eternal king with power and authority and glory. Everyone should be serving him. But he said, no, what can I do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And do we remember what happened the last time Jesus asked this question? What do you want me to do for you? This is 35 to 37 of Mark chapter 10. We see what happened the last time Jesus asked that question. What do you want me to do for you? Mark 10, 35 to 37. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, well, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. How would you have answered that question if Jesus asked you this morning, what do you want me to do for you? Would you ask for something shallow or selfish? Something that will make you look good? How did Bartimaeus answer that question? What did he say, the blind man? The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. And that is what James and John should have said. When Jesus asked James and John, what do you want me to do for you? They should have said, Jesus, we want to see. We want to really see who you are. We want to see why you've come, because we don't know. We don't really understand why you've come. And we want to understand what it means to follow you. We clearly haven't got a clue, have we, what it means to follow you. We're so proud and self-centered. We're blind. That's what James and John should have said. Open our eyes spiritually so we can see who you are, why you've come, what's involved in following you. And I do believe that Jesus is asking the same question to every single one of us this morning. Jesus is asking you and me the question this morning. Dav, I wonder if he'd call me Dav, I don't know. David, what, what can I do for you? What do you want me to do for you? What should I cry out to Jesus this morning? Jesus, I want to see. I want to see my sin for what it really is so I can repent of it. I want to see the things that are slowing me down in my Christian life. I want to see the worldly junk that I need to throw away so I can run this race that you've marked out for me. Maybe someone here this morning needs to say, Jesus, I want to see who you really are. I don't really know who you are. Jesus, I want to see why you came, what you did. Jesus, I want to see what's involved in following you. Jesus is asking us this morning, what do you want me to do for you? And we should all respond, Jesus, I need to see. Every day we need to see clearer and clearer what it means to follow Jesus. We need to see the sin we need to repent of and throw off. What do we read then in verse 52? Go, 
said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. And that word healed there is the same Greek word that means saved. Soth es etai. Healed and saved. So really the verse is saying, go, said Jesus, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. And faith in Christ alone is what saves us from sin, hell, death, and the devil. Faith in Christ alone is what saves us. So what's involved in following Jesus? Well, it means trusting him, having faith in him, trusting him with all our heart, and following him, just like Bartimaeus. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Where was Jesus going? Where was he going? He's going to the cross. Bartimaeus followed Jesus to the cross. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. It means taking up our cross and following him. What does that mean? Well, it's a life of self-denial and sacrifice. And very often, suffering. To really follow Jesus, it means self-denial, sacrifice, and suffering. Taking up our cross daily and following him, even to the hard place, to the cursed places, to the cursed people. And we have to cry out, Jesus, open my eyes to see you, to see your beauty, your majesty, your glory. Could you imagine if the queen did walk in here now? It would completely change the atmosphere, wouldn't it? Maybe I'm not speaking for everyone, but maybe most of us, our hearts would start beating faster. And we we wouldn't know what to say. We'd be in awe, wouldn't we? Jesus is here this morning, and we're half asleep, aren't we? We don't care. Jesus is here by his spirit. Our hearts should be bursting, shouldn't it? What we need is for Jesus to open our eyes so we'd really see him. See his glory, his beauty, and his majesty, and we'd follow him everywhere. When we see something as beautiful as Jesus, I just want to go anywhere. I would stand for hours in Ascot to see Jesus, isn't it? Show me Jesus. Open our eyes. So what can we take from this passage this morning? Some things. Firstly, Jesus is the servant king who goes to cursed places to show mercy to cursed people. Isn't that glorious? Secondly, we also ought to tell Jesus that we want to see. That's our prayer this morning. Jesus, I want to see. See who he is, why he came, and what's involved in following him. See the sin we need to repent of. And see his glory, beauty, holiness, and majesty. And then lastly, following Jesus involves trusting him. And it is a life of sacrifice and self-denial. Shall we respond to God's word in worship 
by praying, and we'll have an open uh, time of prayer. And I wonder, Luke, would you mind praying first? And then it's open uh, for everyone else to pray, and I'll close in a little while.